looking at commands six and seven, murder and adultery. Doesn't look like those two things go together, but let me tell you, if your husband cheats on you, you're gonna wanna kill him, right? Everyone say amen to that. So we know they do somewhat fit together. The amazing thing is in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about both of them together for some reason, and I think he knew what we knew, right? Because you wanna kill the person who wants to cheat on you. So today we're going to be looking at murder first, and then we're going to look at adultery. And uh, this is uh, not the most exciting or thrilling type of topics that you can think of to come and learn about and even like uh, studying about murder. Let's talk about murder today. Yeah, who's for murder? Yay! It's not a particular and exciting uh, topic, but we're going to look at this uh, uh, step by step and piece by piece. Do not murder is command number six. Do not murder. There are three types of killing in life. The first type of killing is personal killing, second is social, and the third is medical. Personal killing is when one person ends the life of another person. Social killing is when a group of people end the life of another group. That's what you would really endorse, that's what you you would call war. And then of course, the third uh, uh, category is what we call medical killing. Why medical killing? Because medical killing is not about trying to end someone's life because of punishment. It's not about trying to uh, end someone's life because of your anger, but it's really uh, usually to do with mercy killing. And we could say abortion is is somewhat of a mercy killing to one person and euthanasia is like a mercy killing to another person. And even maybe we should add in capital punishment there. And the capital punishment is a mercy maybe to culture. And that's why we would call call that a medical killing. The problem that we have with this is that what is the difference between murder and killing? Murder and killing. Because if you read in Exodus chapter 20, where it says, do not murder, I think we all know that it doesn't say do not kill. It just says do not murder. Now, as a side note, I think we have to accept this fact that when we're talking about murder, we're only applying this to humans. It was only applied to humans in the Bible, not to animals, not to plants, not to bacteria or anything like that. It's only applied to humans. Why? Because humans are made in the image of God. And that's when we have a difference between killing and murder. Okay, but what is the difference? What gives us the permission to make a difference between killing a person or or murdering a person? It's simply this. It's what we would call moral justification. Whether you think you're, uh, you're uh, justified by God or you're justified by the laws of the land, it's all about moral justification. So let's take an example. If someone breaks into your house and they try and steal your stuff and, uh, uh, and they, they take a gun and they're trying to threaten you and they say they're going to kill you and they're trying to kill you even and you take your gun and you shoot them and you kill them, our culture and our courts would say that you killed them, you didn't murder them. Why? simply because it was self-defense. It's moral justification. If you're having an argument with someone, you get really angry with them and you decide to kill them even though your life wasn't at threat, that would then be called murder. There is a difference between murder and uh, 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 killing. Now, if we take the example of even uh, like capital punishment, there are some scriptures that support capital punishment, but there is also 
many scriptures that don't support capital punishment. If you're in a group this week, I want to, uh, I want, I'd love to, to, to see you actually bring up this topic about talking about how can we tell the difference between when something is murder and when something is a killing. Now, I'm not trying to stir something up in the Bible uh, or sorry, stir, stir something up in your group to get into a big fight that ends up in a murder, but we're trying to make sure that we uh, uh, push ourselves to understand the words of God. Why do we believe what we believe? I'm not gonna tell you uh, what to believe this morning concerning that. But the one thing that I would say is when it comes to abortion, this is something personally that I'm entirely against. Uh, whether you think there's conditions or situations where it's possible to do it um, could be a different discussion for a different day. But I'm entirely against abortion. The interesting thing as humans, what we do is we replace the word killing for other things. So if we need to kill an animal to eat it, we call it slaughter. If we need to kill an animal because it's gotten too old or it's injured, we put it down. If we need to kill a person because they're too much of a danger to society, we call that capital punishment. If we need to kill a child because we, we think the mother has a right to do that, we call it abortion. We switch out words for a killing. But what we do have to accept the fact is the ending of a life of a child inside of you, it's still a killing even if you're comfortable with it or not comfortable with it. Now, of course, we do have the table at the back, which is Choices Clinic. And if you have gone through that yourself or if you want to support them in what they do or you want some counseling yourself, if you've gone through any type of abortion, we'd love to try and help you to be able to uh, resolve that, to move on from it and to try and figure out where you should stand with God when it comes to this type of thing. Eric Eisnoggle is someone who's a member in our church who is a local representative. And I remember him saying this to me uh, a few years ago and it really struck me. He said that abortion is the last federally endorsed crime in our country. We've gotten rid of state-sanctioned slavery, state-sanctioned sexism, state-sanctioned child labor, racism, etc. Now, whether you think those things still exist in our country is maybe an, a, a different uh, uh, matter, but the fact is they have been outlawed. They're illegal, they're unlawful, but abortion hasn't simply because we believe it's a legal killing in our country. For me, I don't particularly subscribe to that and I'm not down with that particular thing. Maybe we can go into that some other day, but today's not the day where I want to get into that too deep. So let's ask this question. What did Jesus take about, what did Jesus say about murder? Well, Jesus takes murder to a whole new level. In Matthew 5, 21, he says this, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. It was a very demeaning term. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of fire of hell. Okay, so the new ways that he had brought to our understanding of murder, it wasn't the new ways in the sense of he was creating a whole new different dimension, but it was something that had already exist. But of course, he is saying, here's what's already exists. Here's what you have to understand. Verse 22, the new way that we actually murder is through our feeling. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. When you have those feelings of anger, then you have, your, your, you have this desire to end someone else's life. Have you ever been so angry you wanted to see the end of someone's life? Even your own life. Maybe you were so angry at yourself or hated yourself so much that you desired just to die. That, in a sense, is murder. 
The second one he gives is thought. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. When your thoughts are actually in the position of of wanting to murder or pause someone, it's an arrogance. Why? Because what you're doing is you're basically saying that they are outside the, the, how can I put this? They are the image of God. And when they're the image of God, when we desire or think about murder for other people, then we're desiring or, or, or thinking a demise for someone who is in the image of God. Now, one of the problems I have with this is that to some degree, this is the thought police. And I know all across America, we are pretty adamant about independence, right? That you have no right to tell me what I should think. I have freedom of speech. I surely must have freedom of thought. But to some degree, this is like the thought police. That God is saying, if it's in your heart, if God is saying it's in your heart, then you might as well be murdering that person. That's quite a significant statement to say that Jesus would say. The last one is the word. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And I wish, you know, when I was younger, I knew this scripture because when my mother used to call me a fool all the time, then I'd just say, you're in danger of the fire of hell, mother, right? And then she would just give me the right hook of righteousness and tell me to shut my cake hole, right? <laughs> so so, so the, Jesus has taken this whole thing to a new level now. He has said, no, 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 no. Murder is not just about what you do. It's about what's in your mind, what's in your heart, and what's in your mouth. Anger, arrogance, and abuse is something that is, is a spirit of murder, And so I love the way that he just takes it to a whole nother level. The power of life and death, the Bible says, is within the tongue. It's within your mouth. That's where it is. All right, so let's move on, dot com, to the next one, right? And we're going to look at adultery. Everyone say, yay! Yes, I know it's not as enthusiastic as I thought it would be because adultery is quite a horrible thing, isn't it? But there are three things that I want to talk about. I want to say first before I get into talking about adultery. The first one is this. I want you to know we're going to be as sensitive as possible to this because many of us have gone through or been subject to adultery or many of us have, uh, uh, you know, been divorced ourselves or, or, or gone through difficult times. I'm not here to step on toes. Please, please understand, this is not the goal that we have because Jesus, uh, the Bible says that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. But we do want to try and find out what did Jesus say about this. The second thing I would say about this is that I want to look at the scripture. I want to look at it verse by verse. I'm not looking to, 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 to get into any other rabbit trail other than this is what this verse is trying to say. And then the third thing I would say is this, is study it for yourself because I'm not going to say that this is the gospel of Peter Brunton. It's not. We're looking at the words that Jesus said. And if I'm interpreting them in a way you think is not right, that's fine. Go find out your faith with the, with the word of God. Go settle that with God. In fact, let's just pray before we read the scripture. Father, excuse me, our Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you have given us your word and you have given us Christ to be our mediator and to bring reconciliation between us and you. And we thank you, Father, that you are the God of peace in our lives, that you are not stirring things up to make it worse for us, but to get rid of the old ways, of the old ways of sin within our lives. And we just pray that your grace and your mercy would be in this room right now in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. So let's read Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 10, which is mostly repeated in Matthew 5, 27 to 32. Some Pharisees came to him and tested him. 
And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and other and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man can give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The interesting thing is with this, is after he had said this whole thing, even his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. And it is a difficult teaching that we're looking at. What I want to do this morning is I want to take it verse by verse so that we can understand each verse uh, and we can know where we're going with this. So let's look at verse three. Verse three, which was the question. They said, some Pharisees came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? <clears throat> now, the context of this was they were actually referring to a scripture or to a verse or something that Moses had actually said, which is in Deuteronomy 24.1, where it says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent or unclean about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and then it continues on with, with what they're allowed to do. So they basically were allowed to divorce their wives by just giving her a certificate and saying, <clears throat> excuse me, I have found something indecent in you and therefore I'm going to divorce you. <clears throat> now what had happened in the, the generation before Jesus, which had stirred up so many people in that culture to the point where they had uh, really separated two, two uh, streams of thought. It was based on two rabbis who had two different interpretations of this. And one guy was called Rabbi Shammai and the other one's Rabbi Hillel. <clears throat> Rabbi Shammai, sounds like a rapper's name, Rabbi Shammai. And he had a strict uh, uh, perspective on this. And he said, unless, you are do unless there is adultery in the marriage, you can never get divorced. It was a very stringent, strict perspective on this. But the other rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, who was uh, like Tupac on the, on the West Coast, right? He basically had a liberal view on this. And he said, no, 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 no. Anything that is unpleasing about your wife. So there was like a, a battle going on between two gangs, between two uh, schools of thought. And they were basically saying, no, 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 it's this way. And the other side is saying, no, it's this way. And the pendulum had swung to either side. No, no, it's only if there's adultery. But the other side, <clears throat> Hillel was saying, no, no, if your wife is just getting to the place where you're like, you're not attracted to her anymore, <clears throat> you have the right to be able to divorce her. If she's not good enough at looking after your house, you have the right to divorce her. If she's not living up to the standard that you expect and you think you bought into something that you weren't expecting to get, you have the right to divorce her. So this is the context <clears throat> that they're asking Jesus this question and they're asking who is right so Jesus answers them in this way in Matthew 19 verse 4 he says haven't you read he replied that at the beginning the creator made them male and female now what I believe Jesus was doing here was he was restoring the position of woman let me read it maybe a little bit differently in how I would read it or how I think he read it haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male 
and female. You see, this was such a male-dominated society. And if, and if anything, most cultures in those days were, and there's a lot of cultures even today that are male-dominated societies. I don't know if you know of any female-dominated society, but mostly they're all male-dominated society. And what he was addressing was he was tackling two problems. The first thing is this, that only men could choose to be divorced. Does that seem right? Does it seem fair? No, it doesn't. That's not right. And in our culture, we're more of a culture of equality that men and women are equal to each other, maybe different from each other, but they're, they're, they're equal to each other. But in those days, it was only men that could choose to get divorced and men and women couldn't. The second problem he was tackling was this, that women were the only party that were devastated by divorce. They couldn't own businesses. They couldn't, they couldn't really make money. They couldn't fend for themselves. They couldn't really own a home. They couldn't, uh, uh, um, they, 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 they couldn't look after themselves. And even when they were rejected or divorced, they were so shunned by culture that even their own families wouldn't take them back. Their cultures wouldn't actually accept them, which is why it was so shocking that Jesus ministered to the woman at the well who had had five husbands. You see, Jesus was willing and looking to get back to the original plan that God had, which is women are just as important as men are because they're both made in the image of God. And let me tell you, if, there's a fascinating book that I read called The Locust Effect. It's written by Gary Haugen. I really recommend it. He's the the president of IGM, who we support, that fights human trafficking in the world. And I read this book called The Locust Effect, and it talks about uh, the atrocities that happen in the world that lead up to human trafficking. And one of the things he talked about is in many countries, and I know it's even in India, there are some places where when the husband dies, the wife has to die too because she is not worth living and she needs to go serve him while they go into the next life. So what they will do is when, they, usually what they do is when they take the husband, they'll put him on a, like a, a, what do you call it, a, a cremation pile and they'll take the wife and put her on there too, even though she's still alive. This still happens in the world today. Most people who are humanly trafficked today are mostly women. Women are treated as second hand. They're treated as second class, third class citizens even. And what Jesus was doing was he's restoring the position of women and he was saying your question is wrong because your premise is wrong. Let's look at verse five and six. Verse five and six. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. All right, there are several phrases and words he uses in this scripture that we, that we need to tease apart. The first one is this. He's saying, for this reason. Why does he say for this reason? He just said, in the image of God, he's made them male and female. He quoted Genesis. So he's saying, this is the original design of God. This is the way he wanted it to be. So he's saying, because of this plan of God, because of this original design of God, this is why we do it this, this particular way. And the second word that he uses is united. What does united mean? Well, united is when we have a covenant, when you have a marriage but in those days, what you were doing was you were doing more than just getting married. You were literally joining families, histories, and communities. You see, what happened is families used to get together and say, 
I will, uh, let's talk about our future spouses of our children. And they literally used to match up children, not that they would live together or have any type of marriage, but they would have a plan of who would marry who. And they still do that in many cultures as well today. And so even if I was about 10 years old, maybe I would be starting to be matched by my parents to, you know, hopefully Crystal, right? Because that's the person I'm married to today, right? So they would say, let's negotiate this, right? I'll give five cows here and you give me three chickens and we'll do the trade, right? And so they would start this, 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 this negotiation to some degree. Then they would go into a period of what they call betrothal, which was maybe a year or two years where they were committed to each other, but they weren't actually in the marriage yet. And then they would go into the marriage where they would actually, uh, um, they, they, they would uh, um, do their stuff, right? In their marriage. Okay, so what is, I can't remember the word. There's a much prettier word than the one that was going through my head, right? So what they were doing was they were joining communities and circles because it wasn't just single people finding each other online with their profiles and swiping left or right, right? This was a community trying to decide how they were going to join themselves to another community. Now, maybe you're sitting beside your uh, in-laws, but let me tell you, what, what is it like to be married to your in-laws? Now, just smile if you're sitting beside your in-laws and you just go, yes, it's lovely, it's wonderful. Peter, it's lovely. But you know fine well, when you get married to your spouse, there's another side of your spouse's family that make you go, what is up with your parents, right? They're crazy because they think in a different way. I heard a few quiet amens, I think they're right. Okay, um, they, they think in a different way. They act in a different way and they have a whole different standard of life than you do. And you're like, I only bought into you. You're gorgeous. I just want to be with you. But I don't want your crazy mother and father. Tough luck. They come with the whole deal. It's the package. It's the whole Disney package all rolling into one. You get the whole thing, right? Free meals, right? So what I'm saying is, that you marry into a community, and most of you already know this, you've experienced it, it's not just that you are coming together to just have a marriage, you're joining much more than that. One flesh, brown chicken, brown cow. Okay, one flesh. One flesh is when two people come together and they're joining themselves physically, that's sex, okay? And then psychologically and spiritually and emotionally, you get joined together. And what Jesus is saying is, you're uniting past histories and families, but you're also uniting yourselves together intimately. When um, I was about 18 or 19, we, had, uh, uh, we used to go into schools. I had a small group of, of people that we used to go into schools because, um, uh, do you remember the epidemic of AIDS that had happened in the early 90s and uh, late 80s? And when it became quite a, I, I'm sure it was a significant issue over here, but it became quite a significant issue in Britain. And so we thought, well, let's go into schools and start uh, teaching kids about you know, the dangers of sharing needles and about uh, unprotected sex, etc., <clears throat> um, so that we can try and help them to figure out how not to pass on STDs to each other. We just like, let's, let's, let's get out of the church and start bringing something good to the schools. And what we used to do is we'd say, listen, so one of the things that we want you to understand is when you get together and you have sex with someone else and then you pull yourself apart from them, there's always a part of the other person left on you. It's not something that you can just have sex with someone and not be affected by them. And I'll never forget the ones that were affected by this, this message to them. <clears throat> and it was heartbreaking because the one thing that you have to understand is when you join yourself together in one flesh with someone, you are giving a part of yourself to them and as a part of them that is being given to you. It's their love. It's their heart. It's in their spirit. It's their psyche. 
Listen, I even went through this myself where I, uh, I, I had uh, dated a girl for a long time and we were actually gonna get married and we were together for two years and we'd really started to bond with each other so much and we never had sexual intercourse with each other. But even when it got to the day when we realized that, that this is not the same vision that we have, we're probably not gonna do well together in life if we keep in the same path and we should really consider not being together. It took me a good couple of years and a good, a good while later to try and extract myself emotionally from her. It was difficult. And many of you this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about that if it's, it's more painful in your marriage if your husband or your wife goes and sleeps with someone else and the deep pain that you feel. But even if you dated someone, even if you had a marriage with someone, even if you were just in a, in, a, in a courtship with someone, when you're extracting yourself from that person, you're trying to break what we call soul ties, things that are deep in your spirit and deep in your heart. And this is why God was, this is why it says that what God has joined, let no man part. Why? Because what God is joining is something that is sacred. Listen, if you're young, I want to encourage you that dating is not for mating. It's only for data collection. It's for finding out, do we compatibly work well together? Because let me tell you, when you step over the line and make yourself one, fe- one flesh sexually, it affects yourself intimately. And there's something that is inside of you. And if something is taken up in a marriage where there's a third person in that marriage, God didn't say that he took three people and made them one. He said he takes them two people and makes them one. This is why Jesus is getting to this. This is why he's saying only two become one, not three become one or four become one or five become one. Now, this is not to say that you can't have a whole and a, and a, and a, and a, a healthy marriage. You can, because, there, because Jesus has come to restore us without a doubt. But sometimes we have to go through this emotional and spiritual surgery with Jesus and to get extracted from these past relationships so we're now free to be more whole with his original plan. We're more free to be more whole with the one that God has joined us together with today. Undoing this bond isn't easy if it's at all possible. Let's look at verse seven and eight. Verse seven and eight. Why then, they asked, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Notice they use two different words, command and permitted. A command is always, if it's from God, is always a command of love from God's heart. Let me give you an example of that. If I'm standing with my daughter and there's a fast road that is in front of us and I'm trying to figure out how to get across that road, I'm gonna stand there with my daughter holding her hand and and I say, now, don't move until I say. Do not cross until I say. Why am I giving her that command? Because I love her deeply. I want to safeguard her. I don't want her to get killed as we cross the street. But if she takes her hand out of mine and stands there and I'll still say, don't move, she might say, well, how how far do I have to be close to you? What if I take one step this way? Am I still permitted to be under your command or am I in trouble? What if I take one more step? Am I still okay or am I in trouble? What about one more inch? And what we do as, as Christians is 
as children of God is we often try and push the limit to see how far we can go in order to get away with what we want to get away with. And what the Pharisees were doing is they were trying to find other caveats, ways around what God had said. And they're trying to see if they could find a way to, make, to, to be able to live the life that they wanted to do it and not the way that God was telling them to. So that's the difference between a command and permission. Listen, we know the Bible says that he hates divorce. I actually believe that people do as well. I don't know anybody who loved it. I don't know anyone who really wasn't detrimentally affected by it, especially children. But what Jesus' point here is that he's trying to get us back to the original plan. All right, here we're now at verse nine. This is the hardest scripture and, uh, that, that we're gonna talk about. And I'm not here to try and t- tread on toes, but I want to make sure we dig into this and figure out what is God saying and then you can take it for what it is and decide what you should do with it. Verse nine, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, the amazing thing is if you continue on reading, his disciples went, what? You're out of your mind, Jesus. This is the way, this teaching is way too hard. And then they said, what's the point in getting married if it's that hard? And Jesus said, "I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying but he didn't retract or step back on what he said. So even the disciples thought that this is hard. There are two problems I want to address right now. Number one is this, two problems. What does Jesus mean by sexual immorality? What does he mean by sexual immorality? Well, before, most people either believed that divorce, when it, d- divorce was only possible when there was adultery. And adultery is when there's sexual immorality within your marriage at that present time. But Jesus didn't use the word adultery. He uses it at the end of the sentence, but he didn't use it during the word of sexual immorality. In fact, in the original language, he used an old-fashioned word that I never thought I'd use myself, and you probably heard it only in old-time preaching styles and stuff like that. But he uses this word, fornication. And if you look up what fornication means, fornication in the dictionary means an unmarried person in premarital intercourse. So what he was doing was he was raising the bar on what they thought was acceptable for a divorce. And he said, no, 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 you don't have permission to have a a, a divorce because of adultery unless there is sexual intercourse before, or sexual relations before they were married. And if it's before they're married, then they never came to the marriage in the first place as a whole person. They came to the marriage as either two people, three people, or four people, depending on how, however many they actually slept with. So your marriage was never st- was started in the right way. Your marriage was never joined together in the right way. And that's the caveat that Jesus is giving here from my understanding. The amazing thing is in, in uh, Matthew 1 verse 19, um, it's in a sense Jesus is referring to something that even his father went through. Because if you remember that the Virgin Mary, when she got pregnant, Joseph was like, what the heck? And it said that he planned to quietly divorce her. To quietly divorce her was actually gracious in the sense that he could have, he could have brought it up to the whole community and shamed her. But he had the right righteously to divorce her because she had already given herself away to someone else and maybe she should have just gone and married that person that she just had decided to have a child with. So in a sense, we already have evidence that this was godly in the Bible. Now let me make two more caveats with this. Number one, in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, 
Paul adds another reason why a person would be allowed to be divorced. And he says this, if two people who are not saved, who are non-Christians, get married and then one of them does become a Christian, the non-Christian has the permission to say, I don't wanna be with you anymore. And Paul says, you know what, fair enough. You've now married someone else who is now a new creation in Christ, who's no longer the person that you were married to. They've become someone different. The second reason why Paul says that, that you can be separated and be allowed to remarry someone else is he said, if your spouse dies, then you're free to marry someone else. Now, personally, I don't really get that because if my wife dies, I don't think I could really cope with marrying someone else because I'm so interwoven with my wife. Hopefully she's listening online to that and knowing that's very thing. I'm, hey, brownie points, yay. Okay, <clears throat> some of you maybe have been through that. Maybe you have some experienced it. It's a diff- I'm sure it's a difficult thing. I can't imagine losing my wife. Amen, everyone said, well done, Peter. <clears throat> so, Then the second problem that I want to bring up is this. What if I'm on my next marriage? What if I'm on my next marriage? I want to suggest four different things to you. Number one, according to scripture, you have committed adultery. I can't interpret this any other way. If you can find another caveat or another way of trying to explain what Jesus meant here, I'm willing to listen to it. I've studied the heck out of this as much as I can but I can't read it any other way. If you have gone through this and you are in this position and you've gotten remarried, the Bible says you have committed adultery. The second thing I wanna say is this. You must break soul ties. If there's a third person in your life from past sexual relationships when you're dating or from a past marriage, you have to break these soul ties. You have to figure out how to extract yourself in order to be able to give yourself wholly and purely to your spouse that is in your life right now. I don't think that God is looking for you to break your marriage today to try and go back to your first one or just try and be single. No, I don't think God is is in the business of trying to compound problems. But I do believe that God wants us to be whole, to be able to join us together properly. And you have to figure out how to extract yourself because the fact is there's probably parts of the other person that are still on you. Now, maybe many of you can't see from a distance all the little flecks that are still on this person here. But up close, when you get close, you can see the effect that that has had on their life. Number three, the third thing I would say to this is we must commit to the original plan. If you want the blessing that comes with the plan, you have to commit to getting back to it. Now, I'm not gonna pretend like it's easy. I'm not gonna pretend like it's gonna be done overnight. This might be a lot of work. It might be a lot of effort. It might be a lot of prayer in your life, but it is possible because we are new creations in Christ. And I want you to know this, that the fourth thing is this, that this is not the unforgivable sin. Unfortunately, I think the churches have done one of two things. We've just kept silent on it because it seems uncomfortable. Or what we've done is we have condemned people by saying that because you couldn't keep your marriage together, somehow you're less than who I am. I've only kept one marriage and I'm in the in club over here. And what happens is even if you don't intentionally mean that, many people who have gone through this don't feel like that they are good enough. Well, the Bible doesn't say that this is the unforgivable sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. There is forgiveness for this. There is restoration for this. You can move on with this whole thing. You can find a way to to, to pass on good things to your children by changing your own life through repentance. That's all it takes. It's a very important thing for us to understand that God has restoration for us. So let's look at this one last thing that Jesus says. In Matthew 5 verse 27, he says this, you have heard, You have heard 
that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, everyone's included, even myself. I've lusted after a woman before I was married. I've also lusted after women when I was married. I'm not proud to say it. I'm ashamed of it. So I can't stand in any type of judgment or, or, or righteousness when it comes to anyone who has physically slept with another person or has physically broken their marriage. Because the Bible says, if it's in your heart, then you've already put yourself in that position. Years ago, I had, uh, <clears throat> and, and I'm asking um, uh, Mr. Strombe to come up because we are in the position where we need to respond to this. If I've stirred up something, we need to respond to this and ask the Father to, to do something in our hearts. And years ago, I went to this uh, conference. It was uh, uh, up in Pensacola. It was the Brownsville Revival. I don't know if any of you remember that particular thing. There was thousands of people from all of the country coming over. And uh, Mr. Stormy, if you'd like to come up, please. Um, there was thousands of people that were coming uh, to, to this meeting and uh, the, the preacher had uh, preached the message and I was there and he said, there's two people that I want to come forward. If you want some prayer, I want to invite you to come forward. And if you want to repent of some sin, I want you to come forward. So I'm like, yeah, I'll go forward because I want some prayer. And so there was this younger guy, like I am to you, and he said, so what are you here to repent for? And I'm like, no, I'm just here for prayer. And he goes, but you need to repent. And I said, no, no, I, he just said, come for prayer. And he goes, Okay, well, if you don't want to repent, that's fine. I'll just pray for you. And I'm like, who the heck is this guy, right? And I'm like, what's the guy? I didn't come here for your conviction here. I didn't feel it from God. And so that night we drove home and it's like, I don't know, it's about a five-hour drive. And I get into my bed and I tossed and I rolled and I just wrestled with this thing. And I'm like, who does that guy think he is? And in that moment, I knew that God spoke to me and he said, what's the big deal with repenting? Even if you don't know what it is in your heart that you need to repent for, what's the big deal? If you're asked to, or you're encouraged to, or you're invited to repent, just go ahead and do it because it's repentance that is the fastest way to get into the presence of the Father. 